0: I've been thinking about uh, this uh, series, actually, for a while, and I wasn't sure what to call it. I kind of knew what I wanted some of the messages to say and what I felt like God was kind of leading us and putting on my heart, but I wasn't quite sure how to bring it all together, and I was reading through 1 Peter and came across his use of this word, stranger, and I thought, that's, that's it. I want to talk about a series of strange messages. Uh, turn to the person beside you and say, you're strange. (laughs) Now turn to that person that just said that to you and say, so are you. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not, I hope you are by the end of this sermon series. My goal by the next several weeks is to make you more strange than you are right now. I believe that's the goal of the pastors we'll be looking at as well. How many people like Jello? Does anybody like Jell-O? We have some people that like Jello. How many people hate Jell-O? Yeah, a lot of people hate Jell-O, right? I'm not going to get into why you hate it or what I shouldn't like about Jell-O, but Jell-O is an interesting substance. I'm not even sure what it is. I'm not going to get into that either. But it's an interesting substance. You can do all kinds of things with jello, right? The most interesting thing about jello is you can form it to whatever mold you put it in, right? And some people do some pretty amazing things with jello. Anyone make jello molds? A couple of people make jello molds. Have you ever made jello molds that look like this? Here's some pretty amazing things that people have done. Next one, go to the next one. They all look like that when they start. Jello molds. Maybe you want to do the entire country out of Jello, uh, a meal uh, out of Jello. That one I actually found because there's a Jello competition, and uh, someone made a. There's I guess they compete for everything. There's a Jello uh, meal there made out of Jello, and then the San Francisco skyline are there made out of Jello. The next slide has New York, and my personal favorite, uh, Jello bacon. Uh I don't know if the jello actually tastes like bacon, and I don't know if I'd like it if it did or not. I don't know if I want it to or not. But you can do some pretty crazy things with jello. The interesting thing about jello though is it always assumes the shape of the mold around it. It always assumes the shape of the container, right? It's true with jello, but it's true with people too. It's true with people that we often assume the shape of our container. A container could be any number of things. It could be the culture we live in. It's the society we live in. It's the time that we live in. We are often shaped in the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we believe by the container that we are in. If you don't think that's true, just look up some beliefs of people maybe 200 years ago that may be living in the same place that you live. They had different value systems. They had different things that they thought were okay or not okay. They assumed the shape of the container that they were in. You have different value systems than someone who lives in another part of the world, even though you live at the same time, because we assume often the shape of the container that we're in. And it's true of jello, and it's true of people, but the Bible says that he uses this word strangers, specifically Peter uses this word strangers, and I've been thinking about this word a lot, this call to be strange, this call to break the mold, if you will, this call to be more formed into Christ than molded by our world. And I've been thinking about this a lot, lately. Peter talks about it in a number of passages just right in the beginning of his letter. Right, first verse, he says to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered through, and then he lists a number of cities, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and he lists these cities, and the idea is no matter where you're living, you're a stranger, no matter where you are living throughout in any of these cities as a Christian, you're a stranger. And I think today we could add Burlington or Woburn or Concord or Wilmington or Bill Ricker or Lexington writing to those of you who are strangers in that place. You're not quite at home, you're strangers in that place. He goes on in 117, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear, two eleven, he says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. This particular arrangement of words, aliens and strangers, is a very specific one that actually Peter is hearkening the reader back to the book of Genesis to the life of Abraham. Abraham, when his wife Sarah died, was living in a land that was not his home country. And the Bible says he was an alien and a stranger in that place. And so he was looking for a place to bury his wife, but he had to purchase a piece of land because he was living as an alien and a stranger, an immigrant in that land where he was living. Aliens and strangers has a couple different connotations. One is you don't quite Fit in the place where you're living. You don't have all the rights and privileges or, uh, of the people that are native to that land. You're a guest of that place. It's not your native country. It also carries with it the idea of temporariness, that it's not forever. You're not there forever. You're there for a a temporary amount of time. You're aliens and strangers. And Peter uses this language to describe the life of a Christian living in the world. No matter what city you're living in, he says you're strangers. Shouldn't be completely at home because this isn't your home. Other writers use this terminology as well. Hebrews Uh, uses this terminology. In Hebrews 11, it says, all these people, and it's talking about martyred saints, says, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, and they admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. Again, same terminology, Aliens and strangers. I don't know if you feel that way. Sometimes you might. Sometimes as a Christian living in this world, you say, yeah, I feel like an alien sometimes. (laughs) I feel like I don't belong. But I wonder if sometimes we feel like we belong too much. We don't recognize how often the Bible calls us out to be different, to be aliens, to be strangers in the world that we are called to live in. And we're called to do this in many different aspects of our lives. And so over the next several weeks, I want to talk about how the Bible has called you and me out to be strange. Next week, I'm going to talk, and many of the women are going to be at our women's uh, retreat. So I'm taking the opportunity next week to talk about strange men. Sorry, (laughs) ladies, you're going to miss that. Um, You already know maybe how strange men can be, those of you that won't be here. Um, but we're going to talk about strange men next week and how the Bible has called you out uh, and me out and men to be a strange man. The week after that is the 16th, I've told you, is going to be our Vision Sunday for Belmont. Pastor Brian will be back and we'll be casting the vision for that. I've called that one Strange Strategies, that we are called to strange strategies at times to do things that don't may always maybe make sense in the world, strategies. The week after that, I'm going to make an attempt to talk about strange women. I'm going to be treading carefully on that topic, but the way I looked at it is, well, the people that wrote the Bible books were men, and they wrote things to women, so I'm going to try it too, see if the inspiration of the Holy Spirit will will be with me that day. You can pray for me. Uh, Then we're going to talk about strange marriages and strange parents, this idea that there are places in our life that the Bible calls us out not to fall within the mold of our container, but to be more formed into Christ. But this morning, I want to talk to you about this topic of strange citizens because this terminology of aliens and strangers really, really does carry with it the, um, also the, the aspect of citizenship, of immigrant. The Bible at times says you're citizens of heaven, that this world is not your home. So what does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean on a daily basis? What does that mean on a weekly basis? I think the Bible calls us out to be strange citizens. Peter in chapter 2, I want to read verses 9 through 17 this morning, says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves, for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as to the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. Peter, in this passage, gives much for us to think about. Uh, I want to focus just for a minute on this aspect of we are living in this world. Peter says, look, you're living in this world. There are authorities that you live there. There are kings and governors, and you ought to, as much as you are able, to live in submission to them, to to live peacefully, to live a life that's upright within the laws of the land, and by that be a witness to those around you. Immediately you jump to, yeah, well, what about when the laws of the land disagree with the laws of God? Well, Peter says it right in there. He says, use your freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, serve God. And so as much as the laws of the land do not disagree with the laws of God, you can live peacefully and submit to them in a manner that shows the world around you that you are submissive to authority. Peter himself knew that at times the law might disagree with the laws of God and that might call for different action. In the book of Acts, when he was told by the king, by the, by, by the government authorities, you can no longer preach about Jesus. In that case, Peter and the other disciples with him said, well, you're asking us to obey man or obey God. And the implied answer was we've got to obey God in that case. We can't obey man in that case. We have to obey God. But he says in this passage, look, you live in the world, and when you can, submit to the laws and the rules and the governments that have been put in place. They're there for a reason. But don't use it as an opportunity for sin. So I want to talk for a few minutes this morning about this idea of strange citizens. We are citizens of heaven, and yet somewhat citizens of this world. How many are tired of campaign commercials? Anybody not tired of campaign commercials? I should have asked it that way. We've got to talk if you aren't. We've got to get it. It's unbelievable to me all the campaign commercials that are going on, the news in the morning. I, 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 I turn it on, and one break, one, the beginning of one break to the end of another is constant campaign commercials. I don't know who to blame for it or what or what to do about it, uh, but I, we often get tired of it. But we are citizens of this world, and sometimes... There are important issues that are being discussed that as tired as we are of hearing it, that we should not block our ears or our eyes to what's going on in the world around us, that there are times when we need to talk about it. There are issues that aren't just political issues, but are moral issues that are values issues. And so, yeah, you could see it coming, and you say, oh, Pastor, you're going to get all political on us this morning. It's election day in two days, and you're taking the opportunity to get political on us. I'd say yes and no. Yes, I picked this day strategically to talk about these issues, because I think too often we talk about them at times when they don't have as much opportunity and influence to matter talk about it in the middle of January or February when when, when we may not have an opportunity to think through uh, what we might do on an issue or opportunity to influence. But I say no because of this, because I hope that every week that I would stand up in front of you and I would have the word of God in one hand and, and the newspaper or the daily news in the other and talking about how they converge and how one informs the other and how the word of God affects our perspective on the news of the day. We should always have that perspective. We should always have that understanding. We can never ignore the fact that we are citizens in somewhat of this world, and yet this world is not our home. We're citizens of another world. We're citizens of heaven and citizens of God. And so, yes, I believe our time and the word of God ought to inform our time on earth. And our place here, and what we are able and not able to do, I think one should definitely inform the other. And so we are called to be, I believe, strange citizens. And I want to talk to you this morning about three places that are in the news, three places that are in our world that I think we should care about, that I think that sometimes we're told that we're not to care about, or the issue is already decided, or we don't see how the Bible applies to it, but I think there's three issues that are in the news that I want to talk to you kind of application-wise this morning about why we should care about them and what the Bible has to say about them. They're not all on the ballot on Tuesday. They're not. But they're issues that are important that are going on in our world. I think we're called, in fact, I know we're called as Christians. If we're called to be strange citizens, strange in what way? I would look at the words of Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, we have these words of this mom speaking to her. Uh, son is what we believe. That's how it's kind of couched in the in the genre there, um, of of how to be a good king. And we usually know the end of Proverbs thirty-one that talks about the type of wife and the type of uh, woman that's a godly wife and a godly woman. But earlier in Proverbs thirty-one, this piece of advice is given to the one who is going to be king to speak out on behalf of the voiceless and for the rights of all who are vulnerable. Speak out in order to judge with righteousness and defend the needy and the poor a voice. Be a voice for the voiceless. Be a voice for the rights of those who are vulnerable. Speak out in order to judge with righteousness and to defend the needy and the poor. Now, I recognize that that encompasses a lot of issues, and I also recognize that I'm probably not going to hit your hobby horse issue that you might have that you're here today. You might say, oh, he reads that. I hope he's going to talk about this. I can't talk about them all. Hopefully, at some point, we can get to more of them, but I've got three I want to talk about this morning. I'm sure there's many that are important to you and that you'd say, you know, we need more to do more on that, and you're probably right. But I've got a limited time this morning, and so I'm going to talk about three places where the church of Jesus Christ needs to be a strange citizen, needs to be a voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable, and the first one specifically is this, a voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable, specifically looking at the poor and the needy. It says it right in these verses. We often talk about trying to be a voice for the voiceless and a voice for the poor and the needy, and we talk about it in somewhat abstract terms, and everyone wants to help. I don't know any candidate that's out there that says, no, I don't want to help the poor. Right? No, that's, that's a bad campaign platform, right? Right? I mean, you're not, you know, I don't want, no, I'm not for the poor. We, you know, everyone says it. Everyone wants to be. Everyone wants to be for the poor, for the vulnerable, for the needy. But no one actually sometimes gets specific about it or no one wants to talk specifically about it. So I want to talk to you about one specific issue that uh, shocks me that we're actually going to have an opportunity to, uh, to, to, to influence on Tuesday, and that's this issue about casinos and gambling. And I thought when it passed a year, you know, a while ago in our legislature, I thought, well, that's it. You know, it's just going to be like one of those issues that that passes again. That well, you know, it's it's thrust upon us by the legislature, and we're not going to have a choice. When I heard that it was going to be on the ballot and that it was actually going to be, uh, it, it was going to be binding. Whatever the voters decided, I was shocked that that actually is happening in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, but that's that's the reality of it. But what about this issue? And some of you might say, well, what you know, what, what are you going to say about casinos and gambling? And I'm pretty sure you're against it, so let's just move on. Um, but here's what I think we often miss. Everyone wants to help the poor and the vulnerable, but here's what we miss, that an issue like this Often has a great effect on the poor and the vulnerable. I wasn't really paying too much attention to this issue until a friend of mine um, who pastors a church in East Boston, Dave Searles pastors a uh, somebodys of God church in East Boston, and that's where you know this proposed casino is going to be right in his backyard, and he started drawing attention to it, and he started saying, "Look, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's, here, what's going to happen. here's what's happened and, here, and here's what's going to happen right in the backyard. And here's someone who's, who knows what he's going to have to deal with if this goes forward, who knows that his resources are going to be stretched by the issues and the people that he's going to uh, be, uh, you know, feel compelled to minister to and help in this situation. And too often, I think, we just expect churches to be the reactionary ones. We just expect churches to kind of go and clean up behind some of the mess that was left. So the churches that'll deal with the marriages that fall apart because someone gets themselves too uh, invested financially that they've gambled away their food money or the equity in their house or the kids' college fund, and the churches are supposed to just come alongside and make sure the kids get fed and all the needs are met and kind of come back in a reactionary way. And the pastors are there just to kind of pick up the pieces to the marriages that fall apart because of the financial stress that's put upon a marriage or come to pick up the pieces with kids or families when someone commits suicide because they couldn't take the pressure that was on them. And they thought that was a better way out. And churches are often, you know, called upon just come beside and just pick up the pieces afterwards. Whereas sometimes we miss the opportunity in our call to ahead of time say, look, this is what's going to happen this is what it brings. This is where you're going. We talk about these things, the helping the poor and helping the, you know, you know bringing jobs. And we say, well, this is what happens. Look at the reality of it. And what's amazing to me is there are many people who are very far from God, very far from church, who can, you know, people who are in politics in Massachusetts, who would almost probably never get my vote, we're, on, we're, we're very different on a lot of issues, but they would say, they can look at the facts and say, this is bad for our people, and this is bad for our state, this is bad for our commonwealth. Or to look at the facts, I don't need to preach it from the Bible, I can preach it from statistics, and we can talk about, you know, everyone talks about, why do we need, it? well, jobs, there's jobs. There's jobs. You know, the statistics will tell you that, you know, all the jobs, you know, that every, every slot machine has the potential to, to lose a job because of the money that goes into it does not go into other things. Donald Trump said himself, look, people would be going out buying refrigerators and said they're putting the money into my casino. So the money doesn't go to buy a refrigerator or the guy selling the refrigerator or the guy making the refrigerator. It goes into something that doesn't generate any income at all except for a profit for the casino owners. What really struck me, this issue really raised my eyes, is when they were working out the deal with the Commonwealth, and they kept talking about these crazy percentages, like 40% of the net revenues will go to the the state. And I thought, what kind of industry do you have to be running that you can give away 40% of your revenue? I thought, there's something wrong here but we talk about it in such a way. And you say, well, well you know, wh- why are you concerned about it, Pastor? Because these things have an unusual effect on the poor. They have an unusual effect on people with lower income specifically. Some of the things, just lower taxes are claimed. Well, we're going to get more money from it. Lower taxes that are claimed to help the poor equally illusory. Statistics show Casino gambling, slot machine specifically, generates its income in undue proportion from the lowest economic classes. The tax burden is therefore shifted from a relatively more equitable distribution to one that's already economically deprived and further compromised. So just one term, uh, one example. Based on the experience of Foxwoods in Connecticut, the $200 million dollars... That Connecticut received in 2007, here's what it took. 40,000 people losing $234 every day, 365 days a year. That's how the 200, that's where the money comes from. It doesn't generate income, it's just shifted money. And most often, it's shifted from people who can't afford it, who are promised, you know, are, 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 are hanging their hopes on a quick fix, a quick return, easy money, and often find themselves in a difficult situation. The mayor of Ledyard, Connecticut, where Foxwoods is, says this. He says, the drugs, the gu- she, actually Susan, says this. The drugs, the guns, the prostitution, it just follows the money, and people don't want to talk about it. Our sleepy little town did not have this kind of problem, but it's everywhere now, and it's so painful for us. And people don't want to talk about it. And they say, well, it's the jobs, it's the jobs. And then I do more research, and I find out that, you know, a job for, for a, uh, a person who deals cards at a casino is about $15,000 a year. That's not a living wage. And, and then and there's still, they're not jobs that people can live on. And so we say we want to help the poor, we want to help the vulnerable. And we, these issues matter. You know, we make decisions all the time in our state against jobs for the sake of our values. Now, there's, there's a state in our union that allows brothels. We don't in Massachusetts. Why? It's jobs. Why? Because it's exploitation of women, and it's against our values, and we said we won't do it. We, we, the voters closed down a dog track because we thought it was exploiting dogs, and we want to we be good to dogs, so we'll close down a dog track. We make decisions all the time. We don't let kids work under 14. Why? Because it's exploitation of children, and we don't want to abuse that, so we said we won't allow that. So what's the thing? If we make a decision that says we won't allow a casino because it's exploitation of the poor, and it takes advantage in a way that, uh, that, that exploits those in the poor, obviously, and mostly that, uh, that are in those situations. One uh, economist put it this way talking about whether casinos help people or hurt and what goes on. He said, he said, gambling involves simply sterile transfers of money or goods between individuals, creating no new money or goods. Although it creates no output, gambling does nevertheless absorb time and resources. When pursued beyond the limits of recreation, where the main purpose, after all, is to kill time, gambling subtracts from the national income. It's a loss. The laws. And 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 all these, these casino gets built, and all the mom and pop restaurants and businesses around them go out of business, and that's what happens. And we don't see that, and that's not talked about. And the idea is, well, this is a quick fix. We'll get all this money for education, we'll get all this money for this and that and all these promises, but at what cost? And too often it's a cost for the poor and it's a cost for families. And it's something that Christians, as strange citizens, we need to look beyond what, what we might want, our own freedoms, and look beyond and help and love our neighbor. Jesus said, I've come to bring good news to the poor and you know, seem like bad news for the poor. And so these are issues that are strange. You at least got to consider them. You know, we can't be molded by the mold that's around us. We have to be formed more into Christ. And so I just asked uh, on, on this topic, I just asked uh, someone in our midst, in our congregation, who um, God really saved and and brought out of a situation like this, to share a little bit of his story um, on this topic as we come to the uh, end of this one particular point. Uh, Bill Sullivan, one of our elders, uh, is coming to share for just a minute or two on, uh, on what God did and redemptively did in his life and in this situation. So, Bill.
1: Thank you, Pastor. I'm Bill Sullivan, one of the elders here, and a man who strives to be close to God, but my life was not like that years ago. I was a compulsive gambler, and uh, I started gambling when I was about 13 years old, and it escalated as time went on, and I gambled for about 20 years. I stopped gambling when I was around 33. But it was more than just the money with me, Uh, It was the action. It was like uh, an adrenaline. Uh, And I loved to gamble. And I gambled 365 days a year, every day, as time went on. And everything just revolved around gambling. It didn't revolve around my wife or my daughter. Everything uh, revolved around me. I was a selfish and self-centered person, okay? Uh, I never had a kind word for anybody. Uh, Gambling drove me to, I was a compulsive liar, a uh, compulsive thief, among many, many other things. I ruined all my relationships. I had no relationship with my parents, my uh, brother, uh, sister, friends. I never had any friends. Uh, I was out at the hilltop one day when I was uh, gambling and I was with a couple of bookies, that's who I used to hang around with, uh, you know, all people who loved the action and this kid's name is Joe, he's, he's dead now, but he said, you know, Billy, he's, he's called me Sully. Sully, you never have a kind word for anybody. you know. And that's pretty sad when your bookie is telling you you, don't, you never had a kind word for anybody. But, ruin, but gambling ruined my life at that particular time. It ruined my life. And at the end, when I stopped gambling when I was 33 years old, You know, my wife was threatening to leave me. I had a three-month-old baby. Um, My job, I was writing bad checks, and uh, I didn't know if they were going to put me in jail, you know. And uh, I owed owed the uh, bookies all sorts of money, loan sharks. I owed everybody, you know. So I had a choice to make. I always made the choice to gamble all through my life. When it, when it came time to make decisions, I always went the gambling way, no matter what, you know, no matter whose life I was going to destroy. And I destroyed lives out there. But it, when it came time to make that choice, um, because I had to make a choice, my wife was threatening to leave me. I didn't know if I was going to be going to jail. I was in all sorts of trouble with my job, uh, I owed all sorts of money. I finally made the right choice. You know, I sat down with my wife and I told her I was sick and I needed help. We were at Papageno's with my, I don't know if Danielle was like six months old, five months old, whatever. And I just told her, I need help. You know, I'm sick. I have no control over my life. And my job had told me to take a few days off. I worked at a racetrack, of all places, back then. And I was the boss. And, he told me to take a few days off and think about you know what you're doing in your life so when i talked to my wife i told her i didn't know whether i was going to get fired or they were going to want me to go to jail or whatever for the money i would you know for the money i owed them and and but i did want help and i went to gamblers anonymous and i didn't get in trouble with my job just told me to continue working. My wife, obviously, has stayed with me. I'm married 32 years, praise God. But God had a plan for my life at that particular time, you know? In compulsive gamblers, only 1% make it. Not even 1%, less 1% make it. I went to Gamblers Anonymous. I went to meetings for 365 days a year, just like I did with my gambling, because I took it serious. Because it says in, the, in, that, in that particular program, you, it's prison and Sandy or death. You know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to lose my wife. I didn't want to be in prison. I didn't want to be in a sane asylum. But I really didn't have God in my life at that particular time. But, but as I was cleaning my mind, because that's what it was, like a purging of my mind, because all I knew was gambling, You know, a friend of mine that was in the program had become a born-again Christian, and I kind of, I liked what I saw with him. I liked what I saw with him. And I ended up uh, finding the Lord and getting saved. But during that time, I was also writing about all the things I had done to people. And, you know, I was writing, you know, things I had done to my wife. You know, I wasn't a good husband. I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a good son. I, 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 did, I did a number on my brother, my sister, my parents, my wife, my daughter. Uh, I was a wrecking machine out there. I ruined a lot of lives. And I didn't even know I was doing that till I became clean. You know, it was more than just the money. It was more than just the money, it was, it was my personality. And I knew I had to make a change in my life. I had to change my personality. I knew I had to find God, and I strived to find God. And I remember I used to always say, uh, uh, God is for me, who can be against me? I used to say it a thousand times, if God is for me, who can be against me? Because I was still under a lot of pressure even after I stopped gambling. You know, I had to get the trust back from my wife. I had to get the trust back from everybody I knew, my parents, everybody. And it was uh, it was a long process, but I got it. I got it. But thanks to God, thanks to Jesus. You know, we turned my life around. But not that many people get the opportunity I got. I made that decision. Like I said, less than one percent of gamblers make it. And the program, especially in the Gamblers Anonymous program, it was a revolving door. If 100 people came in, 99 never came back, you know? And I don't even think it was 1%. I think it's like a .8 of 1%. It's pretty sad, you know? Like I said, gambling, it destroyed my life for a short time. I, I was able to get my life back, but most people don't get it back, you know? And it's a lot easier to gamble today than it was back then, because, you know, I'm clean from bet for 30 years. It was 1985 since my last bet, and, uh, through God, I mean, I, I stopped everything swearing, drinking, you, you name it, you know what I mean? I'm not perfect, but I'm a, I'm a miracle. I'm a walking miracle. I should have been dead a long time ago, you know? So, God is good, gambling's bad. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. Appreciate that.
0: Thanks for sharing that, Bill. I appreciate that. I can't imagine Billy not having a kind word for somebody. (laughs) I mean, what a transformation the Lord has made. It's kind words for everybody now. Billy sometimes will call me during the week just to encourage me uh, during the week, and I appreciate that about him. Uh, so this is one aspect of strange citizens. I've got to move on. The other ones aren't going to take quite as long, but I want to, I want to move on to some other things where we're called to be strange citizens in our world. This other one um, isn't on the ballot on Tuesday, but it's an important issue. A voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable, I, the persecuted, the persecuted. You hear a lot in the news about what's going on in the Middle East, about wars, about ISIS, about everything. That's in there a lot. What's not often in there is the voiceless and the vulnerable, in that case, is often Christians who are being persecuted just as severely as they were in the early church for their faith, and we're not hearing about it, and it's easy to be out of sight, out of mind for us, but it's something that is a daily reality for brothers and sisters around the world uh, on a daily basis for us, and so... Another issues is that we just can't avoid and we can't ignore. And so I, I asked someone to share with you just for a couple minutes about this, who used to live in a country, in fact, was brought up in a country that is one of the most uh, highest on the list for countries that persecute Christians. And he's just going to share for a couple minutes uh, about the persecuted church, Marvin Thomas. Would you welcome Marvin? Comes.
2: Thank you, Pastor Rick. November 2nd, the first Sunday of November, is celebrated as the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. uh, Persecution.org, they host this day of prayer so that the church as a whole can spend a few minutes, a few uh, moments praying for the church around the world that does not have the luxury of meeting, that does not have the freedom of singing, that does not have the luxury that we so often take for granted, the rights and the protection of the laws around us that we take for granted. So today, as we pray, and we'll go into a little bit of prayer uh, through these moments, but I just want us to know that there are millions around the world that are praying with us today. The writer writer of Hebrews, he calls us to remember the prisoners as if we are chained with them. There's a clear mandate for us who enjoy freedom, who enjoy a moment of peace to remember those who do not. And the reality is millions of Christians around the world are suffering. So in the next slide, if you look, the 1040 window is what most missionaries call this area that's colored world watch list, they rank the highest persecution in the darkest reds, and they go down. And that's where most of the persecution happens today. And that's a high concentration of Christians today. The next slide, John. This is a list of 50 countries around the world with the highest to some persecution. Now, many of us sitting here probably have relatives and friends who live in those countries persecution is real persecution happens every day persecution is anything that a person does to another person because of the way they believe the way they live the way they the beliefs that they hold the values that they hold and it's persecution is something that they're inflicted whether emotionally physically, spiritually, whatever it may be, where they inflict harm on another person. On the next slide, John. So I wanted to share a little bit about persecution, what persecution looks like. North Korea is number one on the World Watch list, uh, persecution, the, the most severe persecution. And as you can read, there are so many thousands that are persecuted or that are imprisoned for their faith today. Next, In Somalia, just the very mention that I, as a Muslim, became a Christian can get a person killed. Even if you don't live in Somalia and if you live in one of the refugee camps or even in the U.S., if you're in one of those communities and you become a Christian, you can be killed for it. Most recently in the news with ISIS and with Uh, ISIL, we've been hearing of many communities, not just individuals, but communities as a whole that are driven out just because they believe in in Christianity or they believe in Christ. And most of these people have been Christians for a long time. One of the towns in Iraq is the cradle bed of, of Christianity. They've been around for thousands of years, and just recently, they were driven out. These are our brothers and sisters. Pastor Rick mentioned that I grew up in a country. I grew up in the country of Saudi Arabia. And these are some of the stories that we encountered every day. It was was every morning we woke up wondering if today would be the day that we would be caught just for having a Bible, just for being Christians, just for meeting with other Christians, just for praying or singing. And that's a reality that a lot of people in the Middle East, they live under today. I still remember while growing up there, one of our churches was someone had found out about it, and they informed the authorities, and they came in, they seized the people, they basically arrested all the men. One of the believers, he was a brand-new Christian. He, pro- he had heard the gospel God had done some incredible things in his life, and he came to the Lord, and he was sharing with his friends what God had done. And for that, he was arrested. He was beaten with bicycle chains. He was tortured for months so that he would give up information of other churches around. And this was not even a pastor, not anyone in that capacity. So what is our responsibility today? Our responsibility is prayer is to support so today as we're as we're thinking about this and letting this marinate and we're th- thinking about strange citizens they are be- they are suffering because they count themselves strange citizens in a land where they don't identify with anymore so today what can we do we let's go to the next slide john we'll pray for suffering families a lot of families, especially men in the Middle East, when they get arrested, the families are caught in the crossfire, and they have to suffer along with, with, their, with the people being arrested. Let's also pray for underground pastors. These are the people right up. They're the soldiers firing the first shots. They're the ones who are getting hit the first. They're the ones out there taking the gospel, praying over people. So let's pray for them too. Let's pray for persecuted communities like the ones in Syria and Iraq. They've always lived as Christians, and now all of a sudden, they find themselves without a home. They find themselves with, without an identity. And most of all, let's pray for the spread of the gospel. That is our call as Christians. That is our call as followers of Christ, is to support the gospel as it goes out to these communities. I want to briefly go back to this list Now, if you find yourself here and you're from one of these countries, I would ask that you raise your hand. Now, if you know anyone who lives in one of these countries, raise your hand. And for everyone else, just look around. The reason I do this is when we pray, sometimes we don't have a face to attach it to. We pray general prayers, but when you look around and you see people who are sitting and they may have families or close friends who are still back there, let's keep them in mind as we pray. So today, for just a couple of minutes, let's all, let's all stand up in the presence of the Lord. And we'll be praying for four things. Now, if you're one of the people that raised your hands, would you hold it up for a second? Now, everybody look around. If you see someone that's there with a hand raised, join with them in prayer as you pray over these four things for families, pastors, communities, and the spread of the gospel. Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be able to sit and enjoy your presence, to sing out loudly your praises, and to fellowship with other believers. But at this moment, we remember our brothers and our sisters around the world who don't enjoy these moments, who fear for their lives as they seek other, uh, other believers and as they seek fellowship. We pray that their families, you would sustain them, you would protect them. But we pray for those pastors and those ministers who go up boldly proclaiming your gospel. I pray that you would protect them and even in moments of persecution that you would pour out your grace to sustain them. Lord, we pray for those communities that have been driven out and have their loss, they're losing their homes, they're losing their livelihoods, they're losing everything. I pray that you would keep them. You would bring aid and you would bring protection to them. Most of all, Lord, we pray that the gospel would reach each and every corner of this world. Lord, that whatever we can do, that we would be a part of that movement that brings the gospel to those who have not heard it. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We pray this morning for the people, and you may be seated, around the world. But this prayer should not end here. This, uh, as you leave today, the ushers will be passing out what we call prayer cards for the persecuted. I would invite you to grab one of these, and as you go through your week, if you're reminded, say a prayer for the country that's on the back. May the Lord bless us.
0: Thank you, Marvin. Appreciate that. Here's a lesson for you. Don't save the one you're most passionate about till the end. Um, I'm gonna do it quickly. Last one, a voice for the voiceless and the vulnerable, the unborn. I've got a lot of stuff in my notes. I'm not gonna go through it all right now. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. Um, I was taken back this year watching, again, this goes back to campaign commercials. What I was taken back by was, it's the first time I can remember, and it's probably not the first time it's happened, it's just the first time I can remember since I've been voting. It's the first time I can remember going, having to go to the ballot box on Tuesday and not having a major candidate for office to vote for that I felt was in line with my stance on life and unborn and abortion and all that. There's always been at least one, even if I didn't think they had a chance of winning. There's always uh, I, It's the first time I remember hearing commercials where candidates were trying to out pro-choice one another or out pro-abortion one another. There's, it, it, at least the way I remember it, there seems to have always been at least one that would stand and you'd be able to vote for it. And it's just not the case this year. And it was, to me, a statement on the culture and the commonwealth that we live in. I was born in 1975, it was two years after Roe v. Wade. Some of you can remember what maybe what led up to that decision and what that decision was like and what it meant for our country, but I have grown up in a country that has always allowed abortions. I have grown up in a country where it's always been legal in some way or another, and I'm, what I'm afraid of is what I talked about in the beginning, that we grow up and the mold around us begins to shape us instead of us being formed into Christ that we start to think, well, this is normal, and this is okay, and maybe smarter people than I have dealt with the issue, and if they can't come up with it, then I can't come up with it either, but that's not the case. This is an issue that the church cannot let go of. This is an issue that cannot be forgotten. This is an issue that we cannot, as strange citizens and people called out by Christ, ignore and just say it's the way it is and it's the way it will always be. This is an issue that we're called certainly to pray about, to to certainly get informed about, and to imaginatively and creatively do what we can to impact the culture and the world around us, that it can change. There have been bigger issues in our world that have changed. There have been bigger issues when, 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 when slavery was considered not only commonplace, but not only sanctioned by the government. Some people were trying to argue that it was sanctioned by God. And that changed. And that changed with William Wilberforce in, in Great Britain. That changed, you know, in our own country, fighting a civil war over it. It can change. And we can come to this issue and so often feel like we're so small and maybe there's nothing we can do about it, but it's an issue that cannot be ignored. And I've got, you know, biblical and psychological and sociological and scientific reasons why I think that should be the case, but I won't go through them all this morning. Certainly the, the Bible says Psalm 139 talks about being knit together in my mother's womb. The Bible always talks about the unborn as a person. You hear about Jacob and Esau wrestling in the womb and it was a person. It wasn't an embryo. It wasn't a fetus. It was God seeing, seeing that as person even before they were born. We live in a culture that wants to say, wants to argue about where personhood starts and where personhood ends. What I know is that given the chance, every one of them will grow into a person. John Piper and his reading, I was reading his book and some of the my thinking and, and thoughts came out of his book, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. He has a chapter on the unborn, and he, he, uh, he has a statement that he puts it this way. Um, I'm going to get it right. I'm missing uh, where I put it. Um, the destruction of a conceived human life, whether embryonic, fetal, or viable, is an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. He says, we can at least say that given the chance, you know, that that the unique person-forming work of God, the only God knows how deeply and mysteriously the creation of personhood is woven into the making of a body. And the destruction of a conceived human life, whether embryonic, fetal, or viable, is an assault on the unique person-forming work of God. And we can go all into viability and all of that and, and all the arguments that are made, but the bottom line is that given the chance that that will become a person that will live and breathe and, and given the chance for that, whether it starts a conception embryo, given the chance that the DNA is within it, that God has created and knitting. That is God's needlework. God is knitting together a life there. At eight weeks, which most abortions are performed after eight weeks, at eight weeks, all the organs are present. The brain is functioning. The heart is pumping. The liver is making blood cells. The kidneys are cleaning fluids, and there are clear fingerprints. We know that viability isn't the issue. It's, not, you know, it's often brought up as the issue in the argument, but that's not the issue. Just because a, a baby needs an umbilical cord to survive doesn't make it not a person. It's because someone needs a respirator or a dialysis machine does not diminish their personhood. Neither does it a baby. It doesn't matter the size, whether it's the size of an eraser or on a pencil. We don't judge value by size. We don't do that anywhere else. A one-year-old is no less valuable than the 10-year-old. It's not mental functioning either. A special needs child is no less valuable than a person who's functioning on what we'd call a normal basis. So we know these things to be true and our society knows them to be true. Piper says abortion is a decision about competing human rights, the right not to be pregnant and the right not to be killed. And so we live in a world where this issue is at the forefront and it's huge and what's amazing to me is we've become so much like this jello that we've just fallen into the mold. The 50 million persons have been aborted since 1973, since Roe v. Wade. Socioeconomic reasons, what if you had those 50 million people in our society and in our world? What's our population, 100, 400 million in the United States? 50 million, more people, 50 million of our population gone. 50 million people. And we say, well, how are we going to pay for the baby boomers that are retiring? 17 million people, more people, would have been in the workforce today. We wonder how these issues are coming up. We've gone against the way that God provides for them. But we have to stand up for the unborn for biblical reasons, scientific reasons, sociological reasons, whatever you want, personal reasons. I'll close with this. You know, I was thinking about this point. And you can't help, right, those of you who are parents, to look at your two kids. And here's what, here are your kids, however many you have. And I have two. Um, and so here's what here's the reality that came to me when I had two kids. I mean, when I had one child, it was like the beauty and everything. I was like, I, I, this is incredible, right? You see the ultrasounds. We saw the ultrasounds very early on. Uh, we started getting ultrasounds at like one two, three weeks, very early on, and so we saw it from right the whole way, and you think, well, that's an incredible person that's in there, and how can anyone not see this as a person? But it was the second child that really, in this point, drove it home to me because this, because I have two children, and they are completely different from one another, and that blows me away how different they are from one another because they grew up in the same home, raised by the same parents. We live in the same town. They have many of the same experiences. All these things are the same and they are completely different people. My son Isaac is, is a cerebral kid who, who loves to think more than anything else and loves to and, and figures things out and challenges me and, and just talking to him, he notices things I don't see and he sees things, he figures things out that I don't figure out and he asks a question and I sometimes don't even understand the question he's asking. <laughs> and then he's a thinker and that's what he does and he loves that. And, and, he's, and he's also very affectionate and very sensitive and he, and he, and he loves to be close to you. And, 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 that's, and that's who God has created to be, that's who he is. My daughter Isabella is, is not that way. She, she is a ball of energy that just runs all the time and doesn't stop and challenges you at every moment. And where Isaac says don't tell me the answer, Isabella will manipulate you to tell her the answer and she will connive until you give her the answer. And there's still two extremely different people raised in the, and here's, why, here's what it strikes me: 50 million different people that we miss out on, not blank slabs, not just blank DNA, but when God brings them together, it's a unique person that is created that we miss knowing, that we miss knowing. And who knows? We say, well, 50 million people, we wouldn't even have jobs for them. Who knows that one of them wasn't the next Steve Jobs who would create a whole bunch more jobs? Who knows that one of them wasn't the one that would come up with the cure for Ebola? Who knows that one of them wouldn't have come up with the cure for HIV because they're all different. And we miss it. I just look at it and I say, who am I to deny myself or this world, whatever Isaac does with his mind and whatever Isabella does with her energy and whatever our kids do with what they do, that there's, it's not just, there's biblical reasons, there's all kinds of reasoning for it, but it's because God has created this person and it's because of creation and the cross that we have value. God creates us and we bear the image of God. Jesus died for us because he thinks we're, Valuable enough to redeem us. Every person has that value. And so I I just, this is an issue. I look at it, I don't see it on the ballot on Tuesday, really. But it's an issue in our world that we cannot stop praying about and working towards. And 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 we're in bringing attention to because too much of our world just wants to handle it like a fait accompli, and this is just the way it is, and this is the way it's supposed to be, and this is. But it's up to us as the church to draw attention to something and say it's not right. You know this is a person. You know it. Just because it's not outside the womb, you know it's a person. And they do know, it. 2005, I remember in my city in Lowell, the Lowell Connector, there was, an, uh, there was a horrific car accident where a, a mom from Andover was killed, but she was pregnant, and their baby died as well. And I remember the outrage that not just a mom, but this baby died, and the charges that were brought against the other driver were not just uh, uh, vehicular homicide of the mom, but for the baby too, because Massachusetts, the Commonwealth, has on the books a fetal homicide law. We know this is a person. It's not just a person when you want it, and a fetus when you don't. And yet, it's often denied, and so it's up to us to continue to not let this issue be forgotten, this out of sight, out of mind, just going on with our life and what we want. We can't let this issue be forgotten, the way that people would go on in Germany living their lives because Auschwitz wasn't near them, because they didn't live near a concentration camp. The issue is is there, and Christians need to bring attention to it. And I recognize, and let me close with this, I recognize even in broaching that issue, I would be foolish to think that there are not people sitting here who you've had an abortion. There are not people sitting here, men, and you've talked your girlfriend or someone else into having an abortion. And I understand that, and I understand this topic touches us sometimes in a very sensitive in a very real way. And if that's you and you're here and you're kind of feeling that weight and maybe you're just feeling that guilt or maybe you're feeling that right now. And if you have never experienced the grace and the forgiveness of God over that, then I'll close with this emphasis on the grace of God for you. Colossians uh, 1 21 says this, talking about aliens. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, and catch this, without blemish and free from accusation. In Christ, there is forgiveness, in Christ, there is grace. In Christ, he offers you forgiveness from all sin. And as horrific as I would talk about abortion and what it is, and I think we need to talk, uh, we, we need to continue to work for its, its, you know, ending. It is not a sin that God cannot forgive. It is not beyond the grace of God. And It is not beyond God's touch. And so, if you've never experienced that forgiveness for that in your life, then I pray that this morning you would reach out to God and experience that. Action steps from here, you've probably got some in your mind already. We often vote to the, we often jump to the voting one, and that's an easy one to jump to. Sure, think about that. Pray. Don't let these things come off your mind. Don't let it be out of sight, out of mind. Educate yourself. And what's going on and what really happens to the poor. What really happens is happening to the persecuted church. What really happens in an abortion clinic. Edu- don't, don't let yourself forget it. Understand it. Support those who are working. Especially this last one. You know, Adoption. There are many of you in this church who have adopted because of your stance uh, on life and and support those who are adopting, those who are fostering, those who are making a place for for babies who who have said, you know, uh, if you say you'll keep your baby, we want to help you. As the church, we should be the ones. It's not only National Persecution Church Sunday. They also fall on the same day. I don't know why these things fall on the same day. These organizations need to talk to each other. It's also National Orphan Sunday. Um, and, and, and the promotion and the understanding that we there's an orphan crisis in the country that the church can fix. The church can fix. And so if those of you who are adopted and those of you who are considering it, that this would be something fostering kids. When a woman comes with an unplanned pregnancy to your church, is she making the decision to come and be shamed and guilt or have an abortion? Or can we love and restore and extend the grace of God in our situation, in our congregation? We can extend the grace of God there and understand that we're a place where God's grace abounds too. So there are very tangible steps that we can take but we must not forget about these things. I want to close us in prayer and worship. Gabby, would you, would you come and would you stand with me as we, as we close out this morning? I realize I've gone a little bit long. I apologize. I knew I was putting a lot on this day, <laughs> but I felt like all of them were important. We are called to be strangers in this world. And so the majority populace might say one thing, and that's fine. But we're called to be governed by the word of God in our lives. And at times, that will be countercultural. And at times, that will be looking strange to the world around us. But we're called to be formed into the image of God and not molded into the world's container. Father, would you help us today? Lord, these are heavy, weighty issues. And Lord, we sang that song earlier today about the oceans and the waves, and we can look at these issues, and we can say that the waves are too big, and the ocean is too rough, and the wind is too strong, and how can we survive, let alone make a difference? Lord, let us be reminded that our confidence is not in us, it's in you. That word, our confidence is not in our strategies or our abilities or our influence, it's yours. And so we come to you. And as you've called us to be strangers in this world and to, to live for you and to be salt and to be light, pray that you'd help us to be influencers on this world that your kingdom may come on earth, as it is in heaven. And that's our prayer today. Father, let it be true of us as we go from here. Let us be formed into the image of Christ and not molded into the shape of this world. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.